This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Get better, faster hydration, and 10 refreshing fruity flavors with Liquid IV. Just rip the stick and pour the powder into 16 ounces of water. Liquid IV. Fuel your play. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or you can get 15% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code PLAY15 at checkout. That's 15% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code PLAY15 at liquidiv.com. Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 185. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. It's been six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's been two days since the U.S. launched airstrikes against Iranian-backed targets inside Syria. And it's been one year exactly since the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. And now is very much a time to stay vigilant. 200 people fucking died. And 13 of, you know, my brothers and sisters died. And, you know, two of my buddies. And, I mean, it's the, the loss of life they thought they were trying to prevent or protect was a lot less than what happened. One year ago this week, the great American betrayal of Afghanistan culminated with a total debacle of a withdrawal that ended in death, disgrace, and carnage. On August 26, 2021, 13 U.S. troops and 170 Afghans were killed when a bomb ripped through the Abbey Gate at the Kabul airport. And that bomb also ripped into Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews. That's his voice you just heard. Vargas Andrews lost his right arm and his left leg and had to go through 43 surgeries. That blast only took seconds. But the devastation will live on for decades. And in this episode, we'll get into it with a returning champion, a guest who's joined us twice before, the Washington Post's intrepid defense reporter, Dan Lamoth. Dan's joined us on this show twice before. Once for a pre-inauguration preview in episode 96, back on January 20th, 2021. And again, on February 11th, 2022, for episode 185, to talk about the new documents that revealed the U.S. military was incredibly frustrated with the White House, State Department, and diplomats over the Afghanistan evacuation. The Washington Post broke that story, and Dan was the lead reporter and joined us to talk about it. And he's back now, exactly one year after the collapse of Afghanistan to share the insights and moving takeaways of a blockbuster-exclusive news story. Dan talked to over a dozen U.S. troops who survived the Kabul airport disaster. They now face grief, guilt, injuries, and much more. It's an incredible story, and there's a companion podcast that features the voices of some of these troops. It's harrowing, frustrating, heartbreaking stuff. And Dan's going to join us to talk about all of it. That suicide bomber did more than kill dozens that day. That bomber blew apart the lives of all who survived and blew apart the Biden White House's narrative that this withdrawal couldn't have gone down any other way. It was a low point in the Biden presidency, 
and in American history. And for Biden, it continues to drag him down still, especially with independent Americans. Dan and I are going to dig into all of it. And the U.S. airstrikes in Syria that happened this week that most Americans didn't even see. Yes, kids, America is still at war in many places, including Syria. No matter what the White House, the president, and the politicians told you a year ago when they pulled out of Afghanistan, combat for the U.S. and our troops continues, and America's forever war drags on. And this August, so does the war in Ukraine. It's been six months now since Russia invaded Ukraine. This week is Flag Day and Independence Day in Ukraine. And I'll ask Dan if support inside the Pentagon is slipping after six months of carnage. And we'll also talk about where the next American bombs might fall, where the next American uniform boots might walk. The answers might surprise you. But before that, speaking of surprising and things blowing up, that's exactly what happened to this show about 48 hours ago. I'm very happy that Dan Lamoth could join us, but that wasn't the original plan for this episode. As I told you in the last episode, we had a very big guest coming up one that I was excited about and I thought you would be excited about too. After years of asking, we finally booked Andrew Yang. Yes, it was arranged, finally. And his team agreed to a time and we were set to record for a long-awaited discussion about his forward party, the movement of independence, and all things in between, all the stuff we've covered on this show for years. Now, booking guests always requires a degree of back and forth. And we had exchanges over emails for a few weeks, as is standard practice. But a few days out, things kind of went in a different direction. Yang's former chief of staff and a guy currently titled political associate requested that we not talk about the forward party in our conversation. I told him that would be impossible, given that that's exactly what we wanted to talk to him about. Now, there's been some confusion about Yang's personal views and the views of the party. And that was apparently a concern for his team. But I was confident we could address it. I also wanted to talk to Andrew about the Evan McMullen race in Utah. As you know, if you listen to this show, Evan McMullen's in an increasingly tight Senate race in Utah against Republican Mike Lee. And obviously, I wanted to talk to Andrew about that. But his team didn't want us to. And I told him I couldn't accommodate that, as Evan is the most important race in America for independence and has been a guest on this show. So he didn't want to talk about the forward party, and he didn't want to talk about the race in Utah, and then about 48 hours ago, they backed out. Here's what the email said. Hi, Paul. Just want to follow back up after checking in with the comms team. We appreciate your willingness to work with us to ensure a great interview with Andrew. However, at this time, and due to unforeseen circumstances, we have to move the interview to either November 16th or November 30th. Please let us know which date works best. Thank you for your understanding and grace regarding this matter. Best, Ed. Now, as I told Ed, this is very disappointing, especially after all the back and forth with the team for the last week, and we've actually never had a guest back out like this. Now, I understand things come up, but to tell us two days out that he can't come on again until November after the election sure looks like he's dodging me in this show specifically right now, unless he's not doing any media at all till then. We've been trying to get him on for years we've invited him privately and publicly. And to back out after committing on less than 48 hours notice, in my view, is pretty uncool. 
especially given that we're the only show in America that focuses on independent politics. And I know I've been a critic at times, but Andrew Yang never really seemed like a leader that ran away from challenging issues or conversations. He also didn't seem like a guy who would demand conditions for an interview. And as I told his team, it's really sad to see that Andrew Yang has time for folks like Tucker Carlson, but not for me and you and independent Americans. Given his stated goals for the forward party and for himself, this is an independent audience and show he should care about. I told him, we really deserve an explanation that I could share with our audience and the public. If Andrew backs out this late in this way, it would require one. They never sent a statement or responded to my last email. Now, in fairness, I never heard from Andrew Yang directly. We've never even met. And like everyone, I give him the benefit of the doubt, and I hope he can join us very soon and not wait until after the election and November. He's talked to a lot of other shows from all backgrounds, and this is one that should be on his list. Because who knows how many things will blow up by then? Because as we all know, stakes is high. And stakes continue to be high in the primaries that happen just about every week, especially for independent Americans. And we saw again this week why our election system is something that needs to be blown up politically, not violently, just to be 1000% clear. But this week, there were primaries in New York, Florida, and Oklahoma, and they were all closed. Millions of independent Americans were blocked from voting again. As we've covered on this show, it's bad for those states and it's bad for America. If you want to see the rules for your state, you can go to the links in this show notes or independentamericans.us. Independent doesn't mean the middle. It means none of the above. And the solution, in my opinion, is not a new party founded by Republicans or Democrats who recently switched jerseys. It's fixing a broken election system. And our election system is clearly broken. Now, I hauled ass with my wife and kids and made it to the voting station just before 9 p.m. to vote in our congressional elections here in New York's 19th district. And I was proud to cast my independent vote for my friend and fellow veteran, a Democrat, Pat Ryan, for Congress. And he won, which is good news for America. But unfortunately, I could only vote in his special election and not in the primary. Because my state, New York, like Florida and Oklahoma, has ridiculous, undemocratic closed primaries. Our public tax dollars fund primaries, but they're not public to us all. Millions of independent Americans are blocked from voting. And until that changes, and until open primaries are in place nationwide, the dysfunctional duopoly will continue to divide, dominate, and damage our country. For a much deeper dive on all these issues, go back and check out episode 171 with the great John Opdyke of Open Primaries. George Washington warned us against the dangers of parties. And today, that danger is manifest. If you want to fight for America's future, no matter what party you claim, and especially if you claim no party at all, fight against closed primaries. Let us vote. Blow up this broken system and stay vigilant. The explosions are now a daily occurrence in our political system, in our economy, 
and on battlefields around the world. Welcome to a look inside the explosion in Afghanistan one year ago. Welcome to a dive into the recent explosion in Syria, one that most Americans don't even know happened. Welcome to a conversation about the explosions in Ukraine that never seemed to end. And welcome to an exploration of the explosions that are still to come. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 185. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, and especially this week in Afghanistan and in Ukraine, it is the dog days of summer in America and things continue to get hot around the world and the national security environment is no exception. While a lot of people are at the beach, war is being waged around the world and with our forces and in our name. So I wanted to reconnect with a returning champion, a guy who's an expert in all things defense, military, combat. Uh, and a really insightful and cool guy. Uh, the Washington Post's fearless reporter, the great and powerful Dan Lamoth is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, Dan. How are you, buddy? Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we get into the hard stuff, uh, how about them Yanks? Uh, <laughs> and- <laughs> I'm, I'm watching New York and Boston uh, circle the drain on different timetables. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you're a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan. Yanks have had a hard run here, but I'm still, I'd rather have my, my hand of cards than, than yours as a Red Sox fan right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were exactly what we feared they would be this year in, in Massachusetts. So, <laughs> well, it's still uh, it's a fun time to be a baseball fan. I think the Mets fans have an edge on all of us right now based off a uh, recent run, but not the recent series. But I ask everybody this. You, you, you've uh, been around the world lately. Uh, where are you and, and how are you? I'm home. Uh, I'm in northern, northern Virginia. Um, I've been working on you know, a couple long term projects that are that are finally dropping. Uh, and then in addition to that, you know, it's, I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's big tournament season. So we, we actually tend to take our, uh, our vacations in this fa- family in the fall, uh, once everybody else goes back to school and, uh, things are a little more quiet. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of wrapping things up and probably moving in that direction in September, October. Excellent. Okay. So may, one main reason I want to bring it back. It is the one-year anniversary of the American pullout of Afghanistan. It's also the six-month anniversary of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So I want to talk about uh, Afghanistan. I want to talk about the, the Syrians, the strike in Syria uh, that, that Biden ordered uh, really recently, what's happening in Ukraine, kind of all of it. But I want to start with your new reporting. You continue to be, I think, one of the, the best reporters on all things Afghanistan and the, the intersection of the American military. And you've got a uh, powerful new piece up with a companion audio and podcast piece that's also very powerful. We'll listen to it, listen, link to it in the show notes. Um, but one year after after pull out of Afghanistan, which many, including myself, have viewed as a debacle, uh, there's a lot of trauma in the veterans community. We now see 
Matt Zeller, our friend of the show, uh, and, and the Association of Afghan Allies and the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America are kind of sounding alarm and again on how many of our allies are, are just off the grid and missing, but also underscoring the moral injury that many of us as veterans are facing a year later after seeing so many of our friends die. But let's start with, with your reporting, your new reporting, Dan. What do you think is the most important takeaway here and, and what have you learned? Uh, th- thanks. So we, we, we've been chipping away at this for months. And, and really, I mean, one of the difficulties here was, was finding uh, both service members who were willing to talk uh, and then also allowed to talk. Uh, so we got different flavors of, of answers when, when requesting these interviews. In some cases, even when service members were willing to do it, you know, they had to get permission. And, and that that's not always easy. Um, but we we're, we were able to get 14 service members on the record. Uh, kind of describing the evacuation uh, beginning to end. Uh, several new things surfaced. Um, I thought one thing that was notable is the, the the level of chaos at the front end of this. Right at the fi- right on the fifteenth, uh, I have members of the Tenth Mountain Division who were who were there at the airport uh, describing a firefight like at the traffic circle at the airport on day one. Um, and, and sort of underscoring how unpredictable the whole thing was right from Jump Street. Uh, you know, they, they tried to hold back the crowds. Uh, they were actually at times linked arm in arm, trying to hold back these crowds. And when you saw the, the surge of civilians onto the runway, that was despite the best, best efforts of the, the soldiers and some of the Marines who were there. There just simply weren't enough troops at that time uh, to, to take to get that job done, which is you know, why we saw the next day or two, you know, this, this effort to kind of take back the airport uh, to prevent things like, you know, civilians falling off of aircraft, all of those things. Yeah, I think we, we were able to get a much better sense of how this looked through the average sergeant on the ground, uh, and, you know, and how, how dramatic and shocking and frustrating this was through their eyes. Um, Can I pause no, you on one one vignette that I that, that I read that was that was powerful? One guy kind of said he described it like a scene from Three Hundred, where they were like lined yeah. up shield to shield trying to stop a human wave. And I think we saw bits of that on television, but I think also hearing the the recounts of how traumatic this was for these folks who were there and how they're still carrying around that 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 guilt and that pain, I think is something that's going to surprise most Americans. I think one of the, the most important reasons that for me to do this piece was to kind of underscore and, and uh, expand uh, on public knowledge of, of just the weight we're asking the people that were there to carry around. Uh, you know, it, I mean, I'm used to doing interviews that kind of revolve around trauma, but it was striking doing doing these interviews, numerous occasions, numerous people uh, where they had to stop to compose themselves. Uh, you know, when cases in some cases, we, you know, they, they're basically, uh, you know, you see the tears coming mid interview and you, and you give them a chance to gather. And, you know, I, I thought that was important. And I actually thought that was one of the reasons it was powerful uh, to, with permission, have an audio portion to this. You know, it gives them the opportunity to uh, share for uh, listeners and viewers to hear their voice. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't have a television camera shoved in their face. So hopefully a little more comfortable for them. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff I hope, I don't know how the process works. Somebody's going to submit it for a Pulitzer because I think it's really going to unearth the human side of this that I think has politically been kind of glossed over. It doesn't feel like the White House wants to look back. Um, but I think what's clear um, from what I've 
read so far is just this weight that they're carrying and and the guilt that they're carrying and just the heaviness of it. You talked to one soldier that lost his leg. Um, can you talk about that, 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 that person in that story in particular? Yeah, he, he's a, he's a, a Marine Sergeant, uh, lost one arm and one leg and several pieces of several organs. 43 surgeries later, he sat down to talk with us. Uh, and he's basically the last long-term patient at Walter Reed hospital. Uh, and quite likely the last amputee uh, from this war. Uh, so uh, Tyler Vargas Andrews, he was remarkable. Uh, we, we, there was no rush. Uh, we scheduled it on the books for three hours, which is already a pretty you know, dramatic uh, you know, commitment on his part to, to telling his own story. Uh, and we actually overran that. We were probably there close to four hours. Uh, you know, and he kind of, from, from, from beginning to end, walked us through his experience there. Uh, his frustration watching the Taliban beat on people, uh, his, you know, a as a member of a scout sniper team, he was up in the guard tower overlooking the outside of Abbey Gate, overlooking the, you know, kind of that open corridor we all saw uh, in the news and on video last year. Uh, so he was able to see a lot of things that other service members were not. Uh, and, and he's carrying a lot of that now, you know, and they're, they're very angry in, in some ways about what he, what, what he saw you know, and just the reality of the situation, he understands, you know, the, the, you know, they had the ability to, you know, open fire and stop some of this, but the, the cascade of consequences to that, uh, you know, would have created all kinds of problems. You know, you, you take out one Taliban fighter who's, who's, you know, beating or executing someone, what's the, you know, what's the second and third order effects of this when everything's kind of teetering on the edge uh, and you're, you've already got so much chaos going on. You, 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 uh, you, you report on one vignette where he, where he or another uh, uh, troop is up in, up in the guard tower and saying, we see uh, someone who looks like someone who fits the description of the suicide bomber. We request permission to fire. That permission's denied, right? But that giving a sense of how tenuous and tense that is and also the magnitude of the decision-making process they had to go to. You also uh, mentioned Taliban executions. Can you talk about that? Because that's not something I think has been reported before, or at least in I've seen. Yeah. So I had versions of, of this and some stories last fall. Uh, but at the time, it was more, hey, we heard gunshots. And these were, you know, people that were inside the airport. You know, you're hearing gunfire. Sometimes you're hearing single shots. And, you know, those individuals didn't have eyes on it, but they assumed they were hearing executions. Uh, Tyler's saying he saw the body straight up, uh, and, and he's carrying that. Uh, and then in terms of that suicide bomber, you mentioned, yeah, that that was a pretty striking, uh, you know, detail from him. It, it basically, we're all aware that the, there was a threat of suicide bombings, uh, and, and that they were worried about it for a couple of days there in particular toward the end. Um, he's saying he saw someone that matches the description, uh, that he and another Marine in the tower asked for permission to engage. Uh, the permission was denied. I, I think there's a number of reasons why that might be a logical thing to deny, uh, you know, given the uncertainty of what they were seeing, uh, you know, and, and also the, all of the second order effects that might have gone with opening fire there. Uh, but, you know, he's carrying it as basically because they didn't open fire, he believes that the bombing actually occurred. I'm not able to ind independently verify whether or not this is the same individual that ultimately detonated. But one way or the other, that's a lot to carry. And I think one point that's particularly powerful that 
I know from my experience in combat, and I think anyone else who's been there understands, is the unique gravity around the loss and, and, and wounding of kids. And you really powerfully report on, you know, the, the vivid imagery, I think at one point saying that there was a one girl holding like a baby and then a four-year-old in the hand, and they kind of get lost in the crowd. The baby had to be revived. And, and, you know, there are these moments where children were swept up in that mix that I think is still underreported until you hear it in their words and you understand how hard it was for everyone in that, in that, in that melee that they describe kind of like a mosh pit from hell. Right. Um, is there two, two questions that are related then one, did you get resistance from the department of defense or anyone else in trying to sit down with these folks or are they all out now? How did you negotiate that? Because it seems like they've kept a lid on this for quite a while and, and it's taken time and space before the truth can come out. So how did you, how did you get to this and did you face any resistance from, from the bureaucracy? Yeah, I mean, uh, I cast a very wide net on this, uh, trying to reach whoever we could. Um, we got a lot of no's. Uh, just as one instance, I, I asked the 82nd Air Board, you know, hey, do you have anybody that would be willing to talk? Uh, and the answer I got was more or less, you know, we're not doing that. We're not doing that at this time. So the 82nd Air Board, there are no interviews in the story from them. Um, so initially, I went down to Camp Lejeune last month. Uh, we interviewed a couple Marines there. Uh, they both appeared in the story. Sasha, Sasha Savage is one. She was in charge of a female search team. Uh, the other one is Gunnery Sergeant Jonathan Eby. Uh, really appreciated his time. That, that's an example of somebody who, who, who has, un, has gone through a lot, is carrying a lot. He was the platoon sergeant in charge of the platoon that was hit most directly. There are nine members of his platoon that died that day and others that were injured. Um, he felt a um, I think a reluctant, uh, responsibility to speak and share, um, basically his unit story. Uh, you know, this is, he was not someone that was like happy to do it. I think he felt somewhat responsible to do it. And I really appreciated his time. And did you request the secretary of defense or the president or other higher ups to respond to this story? And did you, what was the reaction there? Uh, I mean, there was so much out there from them previously, uh, that, to, to kind of advance this, I mean, it's, it, I think it's, we're adding layers to a story rather than bringing up new accusations. Uh, they're aware of the story. I, you know, I kind of walked uh, a couple different uh, individuals through it. Um, and, and I think because this was sort of, um, you know, service members telling their own story, I think there's an, an acknowledgement that it's time. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, it's been a while. We haven't heard from many people, uh, you know, that there's, there's, I think, an obligation uh, for, you know, this to get out at some point. Yeah, I'm curious to see the reaction from the White House. I mean, it's coming at this time where, you know, Biden's got a string of wins. Uh, you know, there seem to be some good results in the congressional elections, the special elections. You know, the White House feels like they're on a roll. And, and now here comes the anniversary of Afghanistan with these guys telling vivid stories about something that they don't seem to want to engage on. It still seems very much unresolved. I think Matt Zeller has been really effective in explaining that there's a lot we could have done for the Afghans. And if you want to see, just look at what we did for Ukraine. So before we get to Ukraine, is I know they're not a monolith, Dan, but can, can you can you take away um, their overall feeling toward the president and toward the government and how they've handled this? I've called it America's great betrayal of Afghanistan. I know that I, I see more outrage from different parts of the community on this than almost anything else I've seen. But 
what did you hear from these folks and, and do they blame leaders? Are they angry at leaders in particular for putting them in that situation and, and, and under-resourcing them when they did? Uh, candidly, a couple of these interviews were, were carried out with sort of uh, an understanding that uh, these individuals are still in uniform. We steered clear of, of uh, heavily partisan questions. It was it was really a, des- a desire to explain what happened in a level of detail we didn't have previously. Um, I, I'm going to be interested to see where that goes, right? Because as, as myself, I remember being able to talk about Iraq when I was in uniform, getting interviewed by 60 Minutes. And then when I came home and was able to take you know my uniform off and speak more freely. So I'm, I'm looking forward to these guys and gals being able to speak freely. Uh, I recommend everybody you know listen to the podcast, read the, read, read the story. Um, let's talk about another piece of breaking news, Dan. Um, again, in the midst of all this, uh, you know, Biden authorizes a, a strike in Syria on uh, on Iranian assets. Right. And, and my headline was, hey, America, we are still at war. You know, a year ago uh, and on Memorial Day, the president and others said this is the first Memorial Day. America's not at war. And then you had Tim Kaine and others piling on. And meanwhile, you're covering things like this. So uh, can you give us insight into what you think is most important about this other than that it happened, right? And most Americans don't realize that we still have forces that are striking um, targets in places like Syria. But what do you think is the biggest takeaway from from this incident? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of the nuts and bolts of the incident, this isn't something that like, you know, comes up as a, you know, this is not a Afghan evacuation or, a, you know, a disaster in Niger or something like this. This is something that's lower level, but it's a good reminder of, of sort of the breadth of the missions the Defense Department still has, uh, that there are still service members in harm's way, uh, that even though we don't hear about it a lot, uh, things can go wrong. People still get shot at, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, this strike was carried out in response to an attack, a recent attack previous to that. Um, so, you know, anyone who's in, in this sort of tinderbox, you're, you're dealing with a situation where, you know, you're, you're, you've got Syrian forces, you've got Iranian backed forces, um, you know, that there's at least some question here, how closely linked the group that they struck was connected to the IRGC, uh, you know, which would go directly back to Iranian government. Uh, you know, these are things that are, are open questions and, and continue to be issues uh, for anybody still on the ground. Yeah, I think I think between this and the Zawahari hit, there's kind of a I don't think most Americans are tracking on this, but there's a feeling like this is what the future of war for America could look like. It's a we'll reach out and touch someone with a drone or with an asset without having a heavy boot presence on the ground. Right. Whether it's by proxy in Ukraine or it's by drone or our UAV asset. Um, th- this feels like what war could have been much earlier if we had pulled out of Afghanistan or pulled out of other places, but was happening simultaneously along the way. So you've still got Somalia and 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 Syria and and Ukraine, all these other pots of places where American forces are still activating. But there's still a feeling, I think, from the White House that they don't really want to elevate. It's not something that they're leading, you know, the press conferences with. They're not starting with messaging on that. Um, and I think it's our responsibility to continue to cover it and get, give light to it. And I, I wonder, you know, you've got your ear to the ground on Ukraine. It's the six month anniversary of the invasion. Uh, they've been at war eight years, you know, I think roughly all together. But can you give a sense, Dan, uh, the president announced another round of support um, weapons and support for Ukraine. Do you feel like the uh, 
like like the tank is running out in the Pentagon and in Washington? Do you feel like people still have the level of support for Ukraine that they did before? Or do you feel like now with inflation and extremism and other problems that Ukraine is 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 losing support inside the building and other places? I, I see no indications anything slowing down in terms of Defense Department support. If anything, I think we're starting to see signs of a, a shift to sort of a longer term, you know, idea. You know, what support look like a year from now, two years from now? It's no longer sort of package to package or month to month. Uh, you know, t- uh, as we're speaking, we're, we're you know watching an announcement uh, of you know three billion dollars uh, of support going forward. Uh, you know, and a lot of that is is money that's designed to buy weapons. It's not weapons they necessarily have in a locker or in a you know a hangar somewhere now. Uh, but but it's things that they're they're planning longer term. There's a shift already. You know, initially it was a lot of planes landing, dropping supplies off in places like Poland. You're starting to see now a shift where you're also starting to see weapons put on sea lift, and and, and they kind of take the long route over there. But you can put a whole lot more. On, on those ships than you can in the back of a C-17. And they're, and they're kind of mixing those two methods of delivery. And I think that goes to show this is, you know, no longer a, you know, today crisis so much as a, what are they going to do to kind of, you know, extend this, uh, you know, stay involved, hopefully keep U.S. boots off the ground, you know, in their own eyes and plans, um, you know, but with all the unpredictable, un- unpredictability still there. Dan, I hope you can stick around for our Patreon members for a couple of quick fire questions. I want to get into the craft of, of reporting. Maybe we'll talk a little more baseball um, for our Patreon members exclusively. But before I do that, um, to, to kind of bring this back around, you've been great about being a part of this show and helping us understand not just what's happening now, but what's happening next. Um, I've tried to bring visibility to potential conflict in the Arctic. Uh, you know, the Africa command is, is something I don't think most Americans even know exists. Um, is there is there something on the horizon that you are covering or have covered or want to cover that you think is next that the country should be watching for? I, I mean, in, in the two to five year term, you know, like I think the discussion of Taiwan is something that, you know, we don't necessarily have full control as the United States of when that discussion becomes a imminent thing, as opposed to a long-term, maybe five years out thing, uh, that that's a significant issue. What China is doing in general is a significant concern for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle at this point. Uh, that can extend into the Arctic, that can extend into the Pacific. There's already a uh, greater Chinese in, influence in Africa. It's pretty broad. Uh, so that would be one. Um, you know, The other thing is as Russia continues down the road, they're going you kind of wonder, you know, as they kind of spin their wheels, how unpredictable does, does Vladimir Putin get? He's already made decisions that, you know, caught a lot of people flat-footed. Uh, so as this continues to progress, what else does he do? That's another significant concern. Um, and then, you know, you play this out over a longer span of time. Uh, you know, climate change is, a, is an issue that I think um, is a punchline for some people. For others, it's a very serious concern. But you, spit, you, you, you look down the road, 5, 10, 30 years down the road, how does that change our world? You know, what do ports look like? How is that different? What does drought look like? How is that different? These are all things that will matter long term. 
I think that's a fantastic overview and, and preview of, of what could be to come. The, the one issue we didn't touch on, Dan, that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on, you joined us back in January 2021, you know, right after uh, the insurrection in February 22nd, you came, February 22, you came back again. Um, can, can you give us a sense of how much of the Pentagon's time is focused on domestic extremism and domestic threats. They've called it at times the number one threat facing our country. We see how divisive and devastating it can be. Can, can you paint a picture for us? Like how much of, you know, the SecDef has his brain divided into pieces around Taiwan, Ukraine, all these other pieces. Uh, is there a way to assess an increase in focus or resources on the threat of domestic extremism specifically? I, I would argue it's, it's, um, has greater attention than it used to, but it is still not in that same category. Um, and, and then I guess in some, in some ways, when you look at the, the scope of something like Ukraine, you can kind of understand how much brain power that takes. Um, but when we see these cases pop up, you know, we often see them in like Justice Department press releases where it's like, oh, yeah, this one random dude, you know, had these terrible plans and they caught him. Uh, but but you're always wondering which one do they not catch? Mm. You know, at some point, you know, you you worry that some of this gets through, and uh, it's often handled seemingly on a case by case basis um, rather than a systemic situation. Uh, so they're going to have to sort through what they want to do with that. How do you handle that, and how do you handle that in a way that's fair? Um, and I don't I don't see it as one where there's a lot of easy answers. Yeah, I really appreciate that insight. I mean, there's also this question of whether the military is becoming too woke, right? It's become a punching bag for for Fox News and, and Tucker Carlson and others um, at a time when they're trying to wrestle with cleaning up domestic extremism, even within their own ranks. There's a process underway to rename military bases. It feels like some of that has kind of been put on pause, but maybe the presidential election will reignite it. Um, but I always appreciate your insight, man. I think you're, you're a tremendously uh, important uh, leader for this country. You're providing a tremendous public service. I hope they give you lots of Pulitzers and your own show. Um, but until then, thank you for being out there and for doing some incredible reporting. I think you represent the best of what American journalism is all about. And I hope you can join us again soon, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Dan Lamoth represents the best of American journalism. He's tough. He's fearless. He's consistent. Check out the link to his article and the podcast and the show notes for this episode. He's a true helper. One of the best there is. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there. We see it every day. We saw it one year ago in Afghanistan, and we see it still in the people fighting for freedom inside of Afghanistan, fighting here at home to help the people of Afghanistan and fighting all around the world. So check out the hashtag look for the helpers on Twitter and share yours. I see you. I retweet them and I will continue to spread the word and add positivity wherever I can. And when you're over there on social media, play guest the guest every Wednesday night. I posted a mysterious picture of Dan before today's show. Some of you guessed. Some of you were right. Some of you were wrong. But all of you played. So thanks for playing. And be sure to check out independentamericans.us where you can see video of this conversation with Dan Lamoth and our previous three episodes where we talked about national security issues and more. It's all independentamericans.us. You can also support this show 
and help us keep blowing things up in the political space and the media space by joining our Patreon community. Big shout out to all our Patreon members. You help keep this content coming. And a big shout out to Marilyn Beam, one of our fearless Patreon supporters who's been helping make this happen. She sent a comment to me saying, really enjoying each and every one of the IA podcasts. I wonder how Buck Sexton would have responded to a question about whether the next election is really about authoritarianism versus democracy. You know, I wish I had more time with Buck Sexton. Some of you loved that interview. Some of you hated it. Marilyn, thank you for sharing your comments. But I want to continue to bring people from all over the political spectrum here to independent Americans for thoughtful, focused, respectful conversations. It's the only way we're going to add light to contrast to heat. And that's what we do here at Independent Americans and through Righteous Media. Continue to bring you the five eyes in all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And those heat-seeking missiles of content are coming from the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez, who've been delivering knockout blows all summer long. My thanks to them. And also, of course, to my wife and my amazing, two wild, fearless, fantastic boys. This summer is going by very fast. And summertime is fleeting, but still amazing. I work on a summer playlist for every summer, and I'll share one with you at the end of this summer. But this song is one I've had on repeat for the last few weeks. It's perfect for driving, reflecting, resting, thinking, summering. And this summer, like every summer, I always reflect on the summer I spent in Baghdad, Iraq. It was definitely one of my most interesting. And this summer, I want to send a shout out to everyone spending this summer in places that are hard. From Afghanistan to Syria to Ukraine to everywhere in between. To all of you out there trying to make a difference and in a tough spot, hang in there and find the summer where and how you can. There were nights in Baghdad where I didn't know if I'd live to see the next day. And now, many summers later, I can spend summer nights with my two little boys. Because I hung in there and I got through it and I got lucky. So stay vigilant this summer, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant. And we're all in this together. From the Kabul airport to Walter Reed Hospital to Arlington Cemetery. From Afghanistan to Syria, to Ukraine, to the Arctic. From the 13 troops and 170 Afghans that died one year ago this week, to Andrew Yang, to Soundgarden, to Leon Bridges, to Dan Lamoth, to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin, Slava Ukraine, especially this Independence Day inside Ukraine. Stay vigilant, America, and enjoy that summer while you can.
Righteous Media.